I also just really encourage people to find time to meditate, to sit down. Does it feel good to pursue whatever it is that you're pursuing? You're successful because it feels good. And that's like the most important thing I've learned through my journey in sexual pleasure is that it feels good to feel good. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Alexandra Fine. She's the co-founder and CEO of Dame, a women-founded sex toy company looking to close the pleasure gap. After Alex got her master's in clinical psychology with a focus on sex therapy from Columbia University, she and her co-founder started Dame in 2014. Dame is now one of the fastest growing companies in the space and just this year raised a seed round of $4 million. Alex, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Hi, thanks for having me. Alex, we're so thrilled to have you. First, we're going to just start off with our lightning round and get to know you a little bit better. Okay, first job on your resume. I was a bat mitzvah dancer. Oh, what was your go-to song? Uh, Well, you didn't get to pick the songs, right? So you're pretty much, I was a hype girl at 13-year-old birthday parties. So you're a horror hype girl. I got it. Yes, exactly. What is your most recent job? Uh, Dame Products. Secret hobby or skill that doesn't involve a bat mitzvah? I mean, I don't know how secretive it is. I'm, I can spin fire. So I do something called poi, which is where you take balls of fire and you spin them around your body. So in prepping for this, I was reading that you, you practice or do poi to relax. Now, I think it's fascinating that like you have the skill, but it sounds very non-relaxing to play with fire. So tell me how this is relaxing. So one, normally when I do it, I don't light them on fire. Like I have LED ones that I can just play with around the house. So, I mean, it doesn't sound as cool, right? Fire is way cooler. We can all agree. But it is like, it's kind of like hula hooping. And then you can like learn all these extra tricks and it can put you in a flow state. What's the last show you binge watched? Oh, the last show I binge watched was Dave and White Lotus. Finish the sentence. What best describes your work day? Working nine till blank. It's tough because I, I recently became a mom. So it's like really like thrown off my whole schedule. I would say nine to six. Last text you sent. It was probably something to my husband being like, yeah, I'll buy that on Amazon. Yeah, I feel like since becoming a mom, my Amazon habits are insane. So let's get into Dame. You originally said that your experiences inspired the idea for Dame. What were you seeing? What was wrong with what you were seeing? Talk about the initial inspiration. So I was studying to be a sex therapist. I got my master's in clinical psychology. I had been researching, learning, and often discussing sexual pleasure. And I think that there was kind of like these two big things that I was seeing is one, that vibrators were very commonly used, especially among my community, yet there was no brand out there that was 
selling them, discussing them, innovating on them in line with how I felt about them, which was like, this was just like a practical tool that I used to get in touch with myself, to like help me fall asleep in the middle of the night, to just get my day going sometimes on a positive note. I was not wearing sexy lingerie, taking off my stiletto heels, eating chocolate by a fireplace before masturbating, which is how I think like a lot of the high-end vibrators were marketed at the time. It felt very much like a male gaze versus the way I think myself and my friend group were using these products. So there was just like a misalignment in the reality of the tools and how the tools were being sold. And then I think that there was a real misalignment too on the types of products that were being pushed versus the way people with vulvas tend to masturbate, which is externally. Let me take a step back. Women are four times more likely than men to say that sex has been not at all pleasurable in the past year. That's a crazy stat. Were you surprised by that stat? No. No, I wasn't. I think that there's so many reasons for that to be the case, but I definitely recall maybe one of my first instances in life of feeling the double standard was when I had like one of my, like maybe my first kiss. The boy was literally, everybody was giving him high fives like the next day at school. And I like got dirty side-eyed looks. And I remember being like, we did the same thing. We did it together. Like, why are we having these like, totally different responses from the community. And I think that really speaks to the way we encourage male exploration, arguably to a fault too. I think that that has been pressure on people with penises and we discourage female sexual exploration. So I'm not surprised that that manifests into such a difference in pleasure. How do you think you go from studying to be a sex therapist, thinking that that's your bend in life, like that's your focus to then seeing an issue and becoming an entrepreneur. Because one seems very academic focused and the other is obviously what you've created today. How did you start to put those things together that it wasn't just something you were studying versus something you wanted to fix? Yes. So, I mean, I think in both instances, there was like this thing in the world that I wanted to improve or change or fix. And I think when it comes to sexuality, I think I felt like there was no choice but to originally be academic because in order to legitimize the interest, doing it at a prestigious university makes it real to a lot of people. But then the truth is like, you know, I'm pretty impatient. I'm go, go, go. I am more entrepreneurial and personality for better or worse. So that just made a lot more sense for me than I just like didn't even want to do another five years of school to get my PhD. I was just ready to do something, get out of a library. So in some ways it was like the same, you know, my passion for passion, my interest in the experience of having vulva and what that's meant for me in my life and wanting to improve that. It just found a better fit and a better home in in the entrepreneurial space. How did you go from observing all of these sort of, and I don't want to say gender norms, all of these like abnorms and the discrepancies that you're seeing in the experiences and obviously the education that you went through to then say, you know what, this is actually going to manifest itself into a product. 
Like I could totally envision if we had known you back then and you know, we were in the same social circle, like we could have dinner and talk about these things for hours. And I'd be like, oh my God, Al, like tell me about the trends you're seeing. And I could imagine really in-depth conversations, but how does it go from that to, and then here's the prototype of my product that I'm going to end up raising money for. There's like a wide range of, of challenges that I was seeing. So for starters, there was a moment where I was like, I'm going to take a break from academia. I, you know, had gotten my master's and was feeling like, wow, I'm watching all my peers like move forward, become, have more financial independence in their lives and all these things that I wanted. So I took a break and I ended up working in consumer goods at a small shampoo company for actually for babies and kids. And I absolutely loved it. I loved the way I felt like I was really like making an impact in the world in this different way. So I think that my head was in the consumer goods space or in like, what kind of company could I start? And I think that like one of the stats or one of the things that I was learning about that I like couldn't believe people didn't know is that most people with vulvas experience most of their sexual pleasure through clitoral stimulation. What research shows is that 70% of women need clitoral stimulation in order to have an orgasm. There was more recent study that came out that showed that only 4% of women found that penetration was their most reliable route to orgasm. So however you cut it, external stimulation is really important, yet all, most of the vibrators that were designed were designed for internal use, and I wanted to create a product that was for external use. In thinking about that, like, was that because of going back to the idea of what you saw out there was from a male perspective, right? Yeah. Most of these products were designed by men. The industry was run by men. There's an interesting history, too, about the way these sex toys kind of became part of, like, the porn industry, which was actually due to rules and regulations around where they could be sold. So then they became sold in really like male dominant spaces. In fact, they were sold in spaces that didn't even feel safe for a lot of women to enter. I feel like one of my favorite reviews was from a woman in her 60s. I might be conflating reviews, but I think it was from a woman in her 60s who said that like, I always knew that sex toys existed and vibrators existed. I had literally just never considered them as something that I would buy for myself until like I saw your brand and considered them something that I would do for like just self-care for self-pleasure. I'd always considered they'd be something that a guy buys you that you like use for his enjoyment. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that they were sold in these shops. So the target audience that a lot of these men were designing these tools for were actually for, for men, for the male gaze in a lot of ways. I was struck when we were reading about you that when you started out, I wasn't surprised that you encountered a lot of stigma around your ideas and your products in the investing world. And I wasn't surprised because it's obviously well documented how male dominated the tech world is and the investment world. So wasn't shocked by that. What I was shocked by though, is in one interview, you said that you heard female investors didn't want to stake their reputations in their professional world by investing in Dame. 
And this was women. And we read a lot about women supporting women, especially in the investment community, trying to sort of change what those stats look like. What was that like for you to hear that women didn't want to actually put their reputations on the line to support Dame? I think I kind of really got it, which I think is really sad. You know, I think, of course, on the one hand, like, that really sucks. We should be supporting each other. I want to say like, oh, I was surprised, but like, I wasn't. I remember being like, yeah, that might be smart of you. I, I, I remember thinking that and like just having compassion and understanding for that person's perspective and also wanting them to succeed. I think that there is this feeling of that you can only change the system so much at once. Hmm. I'm just like reflecting like if this was a male founder and had gotten that feedback from male investor community about something, would they have had that same reaction? And just how it is such a sad thing. And I actually totally understand what your reaction was. Yeah. That, and that's my, my honest truth. I think in some ways it has been easier for men to back me because they have more power and then they can get behind this with less hangups. Literally, I had somebody one time ask me if my company was a joke. So like that is a possibility. And, and mind you, this was like seven years ago and it's so different now. And it is wild to see how much like Romans and hymns have done when they have started off with erectile dysfunction, which I think so many people, when I say that, they're like, oh yes, but that's so different. That's a drug, that's an RX. But, and I guess in the business model, it is different. Like they have a subscription model. So in some ways, like there are differences if we're being nuanced. But the truth is like, nope, these are tools, devices, inventions by, that humans created to help people have more pleasurable sex in their lives. And the way that's manifested for people with penises is predominantly erectile dysfunction medication. It's definitely the biggest one. And for people with vulvas and vaginas, that's sex toys. And in some ways are actually really the same thing. The fact that we treat them so differently and we view them so differently is socially constructed. So talk to us about how you initially got the funding to get this off the ground? I use crowdfunding, which is so amazing that that exists. I'm like just blown away by that technology and that I, I exist now and that I could use it. So I, I took our early prototype of Eva, which is a hands-free clitoral vibrator that can be worn during sex. And this was my first vibrator idea. So we weren't just innovating in like brand and positioning, but actually innovating in our products and creating tools that just don't exist anywhere else. And we launched it on Indiegogo and we raised $575,000 in 45 days, which was over 6,000 pre-orders. And that was a really profound experience for me in my entrepreneurial journey. I like to make the joke, you know, if, if you build it, they will come. And for me, that is very, very true. And in this instance, you have an idea, you're trying to put it out there in the world and for people to show up and spend money and, and want that product is incredibly validating. And you can take that validation to the bank, which is very cool. How was it when you then went out to raise your seed round after not only having an idea, but actually showing that there is interest in this from a crowdfunding campaign, getting the orders out, was it any easier? Yeah, I think it was probably easier than had I not, but it was still really hard to be honest. It wasn't like I wasn't trying to do a seed round until 2020, which is when we, I, I guess really technically closed in 2021, but 
I was trying to raise money for six years. And we were, and for the first few years of, of the company's life, we were doubling year over year on our top line and we were profitable and nobody cared. Everybody was like, doubling's not enough. We want higher growth, higher growth. And I think that that has really shifted as we see like the way some of these consumer goods in the VC space have played out. There is a way more emphasis now on the bottom line and there is way more emphasis now on wellness, on women's perspective. So all these things have really come together for us. But I just remember wanting to pitch the company and just tell people, not even tell people what I did and just wanting to say, this is our revenue. This is our, you know, our marketing spend. This is our profitability. This is our growth rate. And, and just not even mention the vibrators because the metrics were there. You know, the fundamentals of our business were there and it was really frustrating. It's really interesting because we've talked about that. Like if you did a blind case study and you just put the numbers in front of someone, what would the reaction be? As you've grown the company, gotten it off the ground, shown the numbers, as you said, how have you built a team around it? I think that's a great question. We've built a team trying to kind of balance people who are interested and passionate about the mission and about the struggle with people who are just experts in something that they're doing and want to grow. Owning the struggle can sometimes lock you into the struggle. Like if I tweet all the time about how hard it is to raise money, then I'm also encouraging people to think that I can't raise money and therefore investing in me isn't a great investment because I'm going to have a hard time raising money. If you can't raise money, you're not a good investment. Like that is true. So you, we want to show people how easy it can be. Show people the success that we're having. I don't, people are like always like, oh, it must be so great for you to get denied on all of these advertisement platforms because then you can get press around it. It's like, no. <laughs> One, yes, I do my best to make lemonade out of those lemons, but the truth is like, it makes it harder for people to invest in us. And it is harder to, I don't like those press stories because it doesn't help create an illustration of the world that I want to live in. It reinforces the world that we do live in. You just brought up the advertiser part. So I want to kind of jump into that. Obviously, pushing back on the taboo of sex for women in particular is both your opportunity and has also been one of your greatest challenges. I don't think I realized how much of a challenge advertising has been for your company, where you've been prevented from advertising in many of the traditional outlets that most companies go to, like a Facebook or the MTA. I want to, you to give you a chance to explain sort of what you've encountered and what that's been like. Yeah. So oof, I'll start with Facebook. Facebook doesn't allow you to run advertisements for adult products, except you can run advertisements for condoms as long as they're not ribbed for her pleasure, because then it's about safety. You can run erectile dysfunction medication advertisements because those are drugs that men need in order to have babies. That is literally their reasoning, or that, that I was told is their reasoning, which is wild because we all know that it's not why people are using erectile dysfunction medication. It's not to procreate. Anyway, so they, 
technically I'm not allowed to run advertisements. I find that really frustrating. I think especially with Facebook where you can target so much. Why can't I target to people of a certain age, people who in a certain um, country? That's been another thing that Facebook says. Well, our advertisement policies are global. So that means like you would be able to advertise in different countries where this might be really socially unacceptable. That's wild to me. Obviously, I could be able to target just in the U.S. Like those are just such BS excuses for the platform that's made all of its money and its ability to target. I'm, I'm not trying to upset people. I'm trying to find people who are who want to buy my products, not people who are just going to be upset that we exist. Anyway, so what I did was I started advertising myself as a personal brand, like as if I was like Gary V or somebody, right? Like I'm an entrepreneur and I have a Facebook page and I'm putting out an advertisement or a post that says, thank you so much, New York Times, for showcasing my brands and my work in this article. And then you can click on it and you would see the article. And then of course it would introduce you to the, my brand. And then maybe you would go to my company's website and buy a product. That particular funnel was incredibly profitable for us. I was not doing anything against their rules and regulations at the time because I wasn't promoting a sex toy. I was promoting myself and my company. Like I, I thought we would never have to talk to an investor again. We were cash flow positive. We were growing. I ordered a ton more products because we were scaling. And then Facebook essentially changed their policy or tweaked their policy and said that the New York Times article was the problem because the New York Times was talking about a sex toy. Well, it's. I'm just like kind of sitting here in awe because you think about all of the issues Facebook has dealt with, with misinformation and over, you know, these past years where think about how many things have been linked out to false information. And then you're talking about something that could give women pleasure and you're violating standards. And this was like, yeah, this was 2018. And I used to kind of have this attitude of like, don't take it personal. And I do, I think that that's, you know, one of the four agreements. I think that that's a, it's a good one in life. You shouldn't take things personally as much as possible, but also on a very personal note, like Facebook said that my personal brand essentially was problematic and Facebook's stopping me from accumulating my power and my wealth. And you're preventing a woman from being the entrepreneur that she'd like to be. You're stopping my voice. And I do think that that is fucked up. That's really not great. I mean, I'm still going to live a happy life, you know? I don't think my struggle is the one other people should lose sleep over. But I do also think it is indicative of the way women are being held back, especially in this category. And I do think that the different, like, I, I think that we'll have true equality when we have pleasure equality. And one of the reasons why I believe that is because the people who feel entitled to pleasure are the ones with power. So I do think this is going to be the last gender sex gap to really be closed. And I think when it is closed, we'll really have gotten somewhere. When have you felt like you've really started to make an impact with Dame? Like, yes, this is working. And not only are we selling things, but we're changing how people are viewing pleasure. Only one of the first times was Kickstarter. So for our second product, we also used crowdfunding. The first time we weren't allowed on the Kickstarter platform and we were able to change Kickstarter's policies to allow us on the platform. There have been so many other small like banks who have changed their opinion. Like, you know, I've just kind of gotten on the phone with people and been like, look, 
This is what we're doing. Here are the stats. This is women's health. I'm a women-owned business. Pulling out all the cards I can so that we can get a lease. And being able to make those changes has felt so good. I will also say we're suing the MTA. That was like the other big advertising challenge that we had. Like the MTA essentially said that we couldn't run advertisements because we were a, a brand about sex. Literally while hymns and Romans were running advertisements on the subway. Also museum of sex, also breast augmentation, you know, like uh, it was wild. And they wasted six months of our time first telling us that we could run. Like, it's not just that we were being denied, but also my time was just not even being respected. So it was really frustrating. And that lawsuit, which is still ongoing, has been such an amazing conversation starter in the world. And that has also felt like we're making a change in the world. Even just having that conversation, even people being like, oh, I did not realize that. I never thought about that. And if you think about it, like the advertisements we see validate what we think is okay to buy or buy into. So I do think that that's been a, something I'm really proud of. It took me a long time to realize like, oh, I'm going to sue somebody. Like I, as a business owner, I'm going to start a lawsuit. Usually you try to avoid them. And then one day I literally woke up and was like, if our goal is to change the way we understand sexual pleasure in the world, this is 100% aligned with our mission. This actually totally makes sense as an effort for the company. And then it felt really good. I'm going to jump in with our final question, which is actually from one of our listeners and skimmers, Kristen. Kristen, thank you for submitting. Kristen says, Alex, how did you deal with people who doubted you or your mission? Do you have any tips for overcoming moments of self-doubt? It's a great question. And it's so hard. I would say the thing that really helps is data. I think there's like two things. There's like math and data and then feelings. And they're both important. So for me, doing small surveys, like if you're if you are starting a product company, which I don't know, like there's so many things you could have self-doubt about. But for me, I had done some surveys where I had literally asked people, were they interested in this? Like what's like just validating the market and doing research. So I could say, this might sound crazy, but there are other companies in the space that are doing 50 to $150 million in revenue. That was like validating as far as like this category goes. I knew that I had done some surveys asking people like, hey, does this type of product sound interesting to you? And I think it was like 95% of people that I had asked in the survey that I paid for had said yes. So all of those things made me feel like in my core, I knew. And then again, in my core, I felt like I knew. So I also just really encourage people to like, find time to meditate, to sit down. Does it feel good to pursue whatever it is that you're pursuing? Because if it feels good to wake up and do it every day, who cares what other people think? You're successful because it feels good. And that's like the most important thing. It's definitely something I've learned through my journey in sexual pleasure is that it feels good to feel good. And that's, I think, the point of it all. Okay, last question. Who is someone else we should have on the show? There's so many amazing people. I do think like Esther Perel's amazing. We just had her. Well, there you go. I just have one more that I feel like this would be Adrienne Marie Brown. She wrote a book called Pleasure Activism and another book called Emerging Strategy. And she does a lot of like 
transformational justice work. And I, I just think she is such a great voice for healing right now in the world. Okay. Well, Alex, congratulations on everything. And thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.